well, I am nearing the finish line. I can kind of see the checkered flag waving in the distance as it is about to declare the close of the series that I have been in for some time, a series I'm calling Show Us the Father. Today I'm going to minister through a message I'm calling Unveiled Faces, Unmerited Graces. This series has been an absolute delight for me. I poured out my heart. I've held nothing back. I've left nothing on the table. And I believe that these messages have walked the listeners down a memorable aisle, an aisle that is not just sprinkled with rose petals, but an aisle that has been richly sequined in the incontrovertible virtues of the Father's heart toward humanity. This series began with a message called The Virtue of Oneness. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, I want to lay a foundation so that every message that follows can rest upon that message, the virtue of oneness. I shared with us in that message how one plus one does not always equal two. You see, one drop of water added to another drop of water is still one drop of water. Why? How? Because the two have become one. The scriptures tell us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creature, some versions say. He is a new species, if you will. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Friends, through this series, it has helped me to see all the more that it's not just Christ and us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, we find these words. Part of the scriptures come from the New International Version, and then part of them come from the message paraphrase. I think you'll probably be able to tell when the break comes. Eugene Peterson just had a way with words in the message translation. It reads like this. Apostle Paul said, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Remember that, for the sake of his body, which is the church. He says, I have become its servant. Whose servant? The church. The context is the church, Christ's body. He says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, as I was meditating on those words yesterday, I couldn't help but think. The Apostle Paul says, I was commissioned by God to bring a word and to deliver a word to the body of Christ, to deliver a word to the church. He said, this word is unlike any other word. This word comes with fullness, that I might deliver this word in its fullness. He says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Look at these words, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just Christ in and you. There is a huge difference. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ and you equal two, but Christ in you equals one. Is that pretty good math? Come on, do you get it? He says, this mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time. But now it's out in the open. Now you can see Eugene Peterson took over, can't you? Yeah, sure you can. He said this mystery was kept in the dark. You couldn't see it. You couldn't find your way toward it, this mystery. 
What mystery are we talking about? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He said it was kept in the dark for a long time. But now it's out in the open. God wanted everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside and out, regardless of their background, regardless of their religious standing. The mystery in a nutshell is just this. Christ is in you. So therefore, you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. And then he says, it's that simple. Come on, we complicate the gospel. He says, Christ in you, friends. It's that simple. That is the substance of our message. And I couldn't help but think as I pondered on those words yesterday in the quietness of my office. He said, this is the substance of our message. This is the essence. This is the bulk of our message. And this is the essence this is the substance of our message here at Triumphant Grace Ministries. He says, we preach Christ. That's a good idea, isn't it? Come on. We preach Christ. Boy, I hope nobody ever gets tired of hearing Christ preached. What's left? The Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ. And then look what he says. He says, warning people not to add to the message. What message? Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, we warn people, don't add anything to that message. It's not necessary. I always like to say it like this. It's like adding zeros after the decimal. You can add them until the cows come home and it doesn't change anything. You can't amplify Christ by adding anything to him he's already magnified he's already the darling of heaven nobody else has that spot he says we preach Christ warning people not to add to the message friends a significant portion of the church is still preaching the message Christ and you oh but not the apostle Paul apostle Paul said no it's bigger than that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, we teach in a spirit of profound common sense. I love that part. He says, we teach in a spirit of profound common sense. Friends, we are living in a generation. I'm not kidding you. It seems like people have lost their common sense. I'm not talking about only in the church and especially not just in the church, but I'm talking we're living in a world that the enemy has stripped common sense away from people. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I want to take you back to the grassroots of this thing. I want to take you back to where it was just common sense and you didn't have to argue with everything I said. He said, we teach in a spirit of profound Common sense. Listen, there are ministers that might walk in this church. They might listen to a message and they might leave and they might just go, that was just so basic. I've heard that stuff a million times. That's common sense, friends. Profound common sense. Why, he says, so that we can bring each person to perfection. Oh, what do you mean by that? The Apostle Paul's heart was that people would understand that they're already perfect in Christ. And so that your soul could catch up with your spirit. Your mind, your will, your emotion could catch up with it. He says, when you preach Christ, Christ crucified, Christ in us, the hope of glory. When you preach common sense stuff, he says, it brings people to perfection. It brings the body of Christ to their right identity, who they are in Christ. He says, we bring people to perfection. Again, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about identity. When we identify with Christ, then it doesn't take a giant leap to understand that we are perfect in Christ. If we know that we're in Christ, the hope of glory, the scriptures have already told us that. If we know that we're in Christ, then we know that we're in a perfect person, a perfect place. 
then it doesn't take a giant leap, friends, to understand we are perfect in Christ. We are in the same state of perfection that Christ is in. Now, that is an arguable point with a lot of people. But I've come by today to tell you, you are as perfect in your spirit as Christ is. Doesn't mean your actions are, he was sinless. We sin from time to time, but our sins have been taken away. We are perfect in Christ. I'm passionate about that. He says, to be mature is to be basic. I love that. Maturity isn't a bunch of degrees after your name. It's basic stuff like Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's maturity. And then he says this. He says, Christ, no more, no less. Don't you love that? That is my message, friend, everywhere I go. You try to add anything to the darling of heaven, boy, you're going to have a little bit of a struggle on your hands with me. I'm not going to beat you up with my hands. I'm not going to beat you up with a bunch of words, but I'm going to take my ground because, listen, I know the body of Christ cannot be free with that nonsense. He says, Christ no more, Christ no less. And then the Apostle Paul says, that's what I'm working so hard at day after day, year after year, doing my best with the energy God so generously gives me. Isn't that beautiful? You get your energy from Him. My energy comes from Him. I never know what's going to come out of me when I get in front of people because my energy comes from Him. As the Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossian believers, he was within three to four years of the end of his life. His checkered flag waving in the distance. He had poured out his heart. He had held nothing back. He had left nothing on the table. The Colossians had been his delight. He had walked the bride-to-be down an aisle that glistened with the incontrovertible virtues of the Father's heart. Virtues that had been hidden for ages and generations, but had finally been revealed. It was showtime, friends. And at the altar, Paul introduced the bride to the loveliest, of bridegrooms, namely Jesus Christ, the one who had longed for generations and ages to look into the eyes of unveiled faces and bestow unmerited graces. You say, Pastor Mark, do you really think you're a perfect bride? Yes. In Christ. Oh, I know that silence was just deafening, wasn't it? But friends, that ought to be your response too. You are a perfect bride, altogether lovely. I see no flaw in you, said Song of Solomon. Do you genuinely believe that it's Christ no more, Christ no less? Are you saying that I don't have to add anything to his finished work to maintain my salvation? That's right. No more and no less. Pastor Mark, how can you say such a thing? Because Paul said it first. And Paul was the one who was commissioned by God as an apostle, and then given the revelation of the new covenant. Paul had a revelation of the new covenant that Matthew didn't have, and Mark didn't have, and Luke didn't have, and John didn't have, and James didn't have, and Peter didn't have, and Jude didn't quite have. He had a revelation that was much deeper, yet at the same time, it was profoundly basic. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He had the revelation that had been hidden for ages and generations. You know what that revelation was? It was the covenant of unveiled faces and unmerited graces. That's the covenant that we have today. And that is the covenant that the Apostle Paul was littering everywhere he went, spewing, you have unveiled faces. You have unmerited graces. 
The word and is a conjunction. I'm going to take you on a little English lesson. I'll be honest with you. I did not like English in school. I'm going to be honest with you. I've learned more about English since I started to preach a, a whole bunch of years ago. It just forced me to learn more about English, right? Because I didn't want to sound too stupid. <laughs> so the word and, I do know this, that it's a conjunction. And the word in is a preposition. The one thing that conjunctions and prepositions have in common, there is something that they have in common, and that is that they are both connecting words. They're like boxcars on a train. One connects something to the other, right? The conjunction and connects phrases or clauses together, but the preposition in connects nouns or pronouns to another word. Now, I want you to see this in application in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. I love this scripture. I think you like this one very well too, right? Are you fond of this scripture? You should be, friends. Paul wrote these words too. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Meditate on that for just a second. I want you to note how the pronoun them is connected to no condemnation. But without the preposition in and the noun Christ Jesus, we would have an incomplete understanding of this scripture. Let's shorten it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them. Okay, that's the real short version of it, right? You see, with that, we're forced to fill in our own blanks. To them that what? To them that do good? To them whose good outweighs their bad? To them who try hard? See, you're forced to fill in the blank there, aren't you? So that little preposition in and that noun, Christ, it makes all the difference of that scripture. Remember, it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There would be no confidence, no hope, if we were not one with the one who holds our promise together. You see, when it says there is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus, we can see the one who's holding this promise together, can't we? It's Christ in us. And if you remove that section of the scripture, then you lose your confidence. You lose your hope. You know, friends, listen, I did my share of fishing in the days. And one thing I know about an anchor is it doesn't work unless it's attached to the bottom of the lake or the river, whatever you're fishing in. So if you're fishing in a 50-foot deep lake and your anchor's on a 35-foot rope and you throw that anchor overboard, that is not going to help you one bit. It's got to be attached to something. That's what an anchor does, is it grabs the bottom and it hooks on something, the dirt, the rocks, whatever it may be, and it anchors the boat from moving. And hope doesn't work unless it's attached to something or someone, in our case, that cannot slip, cannot fail, and cannot lie. Hope that doesn't reach within the veil, that is the Lord Jesus Christ's body, is no hope at all. Because it's in Christ where we find our hope. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. <laughs> Look at this. Now we have this hope. You like hope? My last message was about hope. Now we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I told you, friends. We have hope as an anchor for the soul. And it says, it cannot slip good. And it cannot break. That's good too. Down under whoever steps upon it. Oh, I love that. A hope that reaches farther and enters into the very certainty of the presence. Look at those words. Within the veil. What is the veil? It's more than a curtain, friends. The veil is Christ's body. And he says, this hope reaches within it's like an anchor for your soul that reaches within the veil it's tethered to christ and then it says where jesus has entered in for us in advance a forerunner having become a high priest forever after the order with the rank of melchizedek his name means the king of righteousness 
and it's after the order and the rank of Melchizedek. Again, it is not just Christ and us. It is Christ in us. You see, I can go to a football game and I can be with thousands of fans. Can you see that? Me and thousands of people, thousands of fans. But that doesn't make me one with the fans, does it? No, I'm still my separate person. But in Christ, we become one. And in Him, we receive the Word in fullness. We have the fullness of Christ, full measure of Christ. In Christ, we are no longer hidden in the darkness. Isn't that wonderful? In Christ, the glorious riches of this mystery have been brought out into the open. Your background doesn't disqualify you, and your religious affiliation doesn't matter. It is in Christ. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory that matters. We preach Christ warning people not to add to the message. Why would you want to spoil it? Listen, Valerie makes some pretty good soups, but I'm sure there are some spices out there that if you took her wonderful soup and you just randomly added your own spices, you would ruin that soup. And that's what happens when we add to Christ's finished work. What we're saying is your finished work wasn't enough. I've got to add my own spice to it. No, you don't. Remember, you got to go back to the basics. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So your background doesn't disqualify you. And your religious affiliation doesn't matter. What matters is, does Christ live in you? Is he your hope of glory? We preach Christ warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to perfection. In other words, again, so that we can bring you to the realization that Christ has already made you perfect. And how is it that we bring people to the understanding that they are perfect in Christ? Let me ask you that question. How is it that we do that? Friends, I'll tell you how you do it. When you preach Christ... No more. Christ, no less. And because of that revelation, we stand. We stand with unveiled faces and we rest in unmerited graces. On the heels of that first message, the virtue of oneness, came the message called the virtue of faithful love. And when I think about faithful love, I am constantly reminded that it's never been about my faithful love for him. It's been about his faithful love for me. I fail. He never fails. I fall short. He's always over the top. I miss the mark. He never misses mark. The scriptures tell us that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. On the heels of the virtue of faithful love came the next message, the virtue of the inner will. I love that message. That message speaks of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think we don't say much about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about Jesus all the time, and I get the Trinity thing somewhat. I get it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I get it. It seems like most people, it seems like, don't preach much about the Holy Spirit. It talked about the Holy Spirit who refreshes our soul. And how does He do it? It's an inside job. He does it from the inside out. And when the truth that the well of the new covenant has been placed on the inside of you, when that truth becomes your reality, then that truth will slake your thirst. You won't find yourself so thirsty all the time, so hungry all the time. As a result, you know what happens? Like the lady at the well, you abandon your rope in your pitiful little bucket. You will forsake your desire to provide for yourself. The inner well is the Holy Spirit, the one who Jesus declared would be our deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance, the one who would take up residence and flow from our bellies. Remember those scriptures? Jesus used them at the last day of the feast. 
He said, on the last day of the feast, it says, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Watch this. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believeth on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you see this, friends? The inner well is the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, refreshing us constantly, an unending supply of refreshing water. On the heels of the virtue of the inner well came the virtue of magnified mercy. Now, I understand we live in a broken world and the problems we are facing can seem so towering so daunting and so insurmountable that they often seem bigger than our God. Come on, you've been there, haven't you? You know how you know that that's how they came across is because your actions and your words corroborated your feelings. Friends, His mercies are larger than any issue we face and greater than any mistake we make. You know, under the old covenant, it was written, great is thy faithfulness. He said, thy mercies are new daily. Friends, listen, under the new covenant, his mercies are still new every single day to us. But under the new covenant, because of Christ, they are magnified. We have magnified mercy in Christ. Do you see that? If you don't, when you read your Bible, read it through the magnifying glass of Christ. No more. Christ, no less. Read it like that. And guess what? His mercies will magnify. Absolutely magnify. Would you like to go for a stroll in the garden of the Father's heart? That was the next message in this series. Would you like for daddy to gather the fragments of your broken soul, your broken life? That was the next message in this series. Would you like to be overwhelmed by the light of life? That was the seventh message in this series. Would you like to be introduced to a hope that never disappoints? That was the last message I just preached a couple of weeks ago in this series. Well, friends, this is precisely the rose-petaled aisle that this series has walked us down. And today, I'm going to throw just a few more rose petals as I walk down an aisle and I minister just for a few more minutes through this message, Unveiled Faces, Unmerited Graces. Veils have been in use for thousands of years. We find the first mention of a veil as early as the book of Genesis. And women from the East typically wore them as a sign of chastity and modesty and reverence and submission. However, most experts will agree that the wedding veil, the wedding veil as we know it, has its roots in Roman culture. You see, in early Roman civilization, a bride would marry with a veil over her face. Would you like to know why the bride-to-be did such a thing? Would you like to know why? She did it in an attempt to disguise herself from the evil spirits that she believed were at work in her to vex her marital bliss. That's why she wore a veil. Let me ask you a question. Why did they believe such nonsense? Isn't that a good question? Why would you believe such nonsense? Because it was learned as a child. It was modeled as a child. It was ingrained into the growing and tender hearts of children. It was part of their culture and traditions, therefore taught, therefore learned, therefore propagated. Friends, unlearning the nonsense that we have learned while growing up, even in the church, takes time. I'm not saying that everything we learned was nonsense, but we learned a bunch of it. Traditions of men, we took things out of context. And unlearning that takes time. 
Don't think that you're just not getting it. Don't beat yourself up. I'm telling you, it takes time. I'm still learning. God is still undoing some of the things that I was taught growing up in a Pentecostal church. I'm not picking on the Pentecostals, but I'm telling you, you see that simple little wedding band right there? Nobody in our church wore one of those because they took the scriptures out of Peter, totally out of context, and said, do not be plated with gold. You couldn't tell who was married because nobody had on a wedding band. I think probably since then they've come to realize that that was pretty foolish. But this is what I'm telling you, because of the way someone saw the scriptures and took it out of context, they taught it as doctrine, and then all the little children would grow up and none of them would wear a wedding ring. You couldn't wear a necklace, you couldn't wear a bracelet, you couldn't wear earrings. You could wear a watch. And my mother, just so that she could kind of get away with wearing jewelry, bought a little clock that she put on a chain so that she said, I'm really not wearing a necklace. I'm just wearing my watch right here. Isn't that weird how we find ways to skirt around everything, don't we? But it takes a while to unlearn things, even though the checkered flag swings back and forth, signifying it is finished. Religion has taught us from a child to keep running laps, even though the checkered flag has already waved. Religion has instructed us to hide behind our veils, or in some cases, that God is still behind a veil. It's all nonsense. When my son Tyler was five years old, in he a darling? His lips were so red, it looked like he was wearing lipstick. When my son Tyler was about five years old, I guess, he was asked to be a ring bearer in a wedding ceremony. And when it came time for... Tyler to walk the aisle alongside of a darling little flower girl. No one had told little Tyler that he wasn't supposed to pick up the petals that she was dispersing from her basket. So it obviously became quite comical, right? Very comical. They're walking down the aisle and she didn't practice throwing those little things uh, in practice. I was there for practice. She didn't throw them in practice because then that makes too much of a mess just for practice. So Tyler was picking all the little flowers up and putting them back in her basket. You see, in little five-year-old Tyler's mind, he thought, this is a special event, and you're making a mess, little girl. Tradition has taught me at home to pick up my messes. I'm going to have to clean this up. <laughs> Friends, we have all made messes. We've left petals all over the place. We've made messes everywhere we went in our lives, but Jesus is the one who cleans us up. You do not clean yourself up. Jesus is the one who cleans us up. He cleans us up perfectly, and He cleans us up once, come on, for all. Perfectly and once for all. We see this truth in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 20. You know I like these scriptures, don't you? I use them a lot. I love them. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Please, 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 I, I hope you take this scripture and let it anchor to your heart this morning. For by one offering, it's Jesus being offered up here, isn't it? For by one offering, he hath perfected forever not himself. He was already perfect. So to who did he make perfect? You and me, us and we. He made us perfect. Them, he says, that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I love this. He says, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. In other words, you cannot bring an offering for your sin. Your begging and pleading would be an offering. You can't bring that. Your giving would be an offering. You can't give that. There's no more offering for sin. Why? Because his blood worked. His blood was sufficient. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a place that you couldn't go at one time, the holy of holies. 
The average man was not allowed there, only the priests, and once a year. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not your works, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us. Look at these words. Through the veil, that is to say, his body. The veil is his body. And the veil has been torn. His body was torn, friends, for you and me. And we can enter in through that body of Christ. Friends, we have been perfected through the veil, the Lord's body. If you would have backed up just four verses in Hebrews chapter 10 there and looked at verse 10, it would have said, By this will we have been forgiven and made clean once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. How'd you get clean? By his body. How do you stay clean? By his body. How long does it keep you clean? Once for all. Are there any sacrifices left? No, no more sacrifices. Not for Jesus and not for you. Isn't that simple? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? This is what I want you to know. Christ no more. Christ no less. Unveiled faces, unmerited graces. The Roman wedding veil would eventually lose its popularity. I suppose the women, like every other custom, got away from it for some reason. But it eventually would lose its popularity and was not used in wedding ceremonies for many years. It would be Queen Victoria, her use of the veil at her wedding to Prince Albert in 1840, that would rekindle the use of the veil. But this time, as a cherished wedding gown accessory, and not as a means to thwart evil spirits. Unlike the early Romans, women worldwide primarily view the wedding veil as an article that signifies innocence, and it signifies purity. The backside of the veil is typically much longer than the front side, as you know, and that's why it's referred to as the train. It's like a train with many boxcars, right? The longer the train the more elegant the bride's entrance and the more dramatic the center aisle walk becomes. But friends, whether it's the length of your Fortune 500 company resume or it's the length of your criminal record, they're not taken into consideration in Christ. It is Christ alone. Christ no more. Christ no less. So it doesn't matter what your pedigree looks like. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It's Christ alone. Our daddy has richly sequined his son's bride with holiness and righteousness. He has presided over the wedding ceremony with the words, what I have joined together, man cannot separate. And out of his fullness, he has given us treasures. He has given us wedding gifts. You know what they are? He's given us everything that we need in life that pertains to godliness in life. The checkered flag has waved. The cross worked. We can add nothing to His finished work, even though religion tells you, keep running laps. No, the checkered flag has waved. No, keep running laps. No! That's Christ. Plus, when it's supposed to be Christ alone, the only thing that matters now is unveiled faces, unmerited graces. The veil's front side is what is known as the blusher. Isn't that kind of cute? It's what's known as the blusher. You see, it is a common occurrence for probably the majority of women to blush the moment that all eyes are drawn to them as they walk the center aisle to meet their groom, especially if they're not wearing a veil. When they're wearing the veil, they understand you can't see them as well. And so you can't see their imperfections as well. Whatever it may be, they don't blush as much. Blushing 
is triggered by strong emotions and intense feelings. All kinds of strong emotions. Stress can make you blush. Anger can make you blush. But I'll tell you the one that leads the pack, and that is embarrassment. These emotions, you know what they do? They cause the blood vessels in our face to widen. That's why our cheeks turn red. Our face turns bright red. And there are times, it's not very often, but I will even blush, believe it or not. I don't know what it is that does it, just probably something silly, something that embarrassed me. You have to understand, this is a normal reaction of our nervous system. Medical websites will tell us that if blushing is a frequent and an embarrassing problem for you, you can get help. They will tell you that. You can get some help. Would you like to know what they prescribe in addition to medicine? Because they want to give you medicine, don't they? Cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what they prescribe. Do you know what that does for you? It teaches you to be more aware of your thoughts and feelings. Now they're on the right track, but they're still missing something. They're missing the preposition in and the noun Christ. That's what they're missing. Friends, the bride of Christ never needs to blush with embarrassment. Walk the aisle with unveiled faces. Walk your aisle with unmerited graces. Allow everyone to stare at you because in Christ, all of your imperfections have been taken away. Remember, Song of Solomon, there is no flaw in you. He's saying there are no imperfections in you. Jesus, like Tyler, has come behind us and gathered all of our fallen petals. He has sequined us under a robe of righteousness. Condemnation has ceased, friends, the anchor holds. This is a work of His grace. This is His best at showing us the Father. Isn't He beautiful? He's arranged everything. The evil spirit that once robbed us of happiness has been defeated. Friends, it is healthy, very healthy, to remind ourselves that we stand with unveiled faces, unmerited graces, in Christ. Now, I think the wedding veil is beautiful. I really do. When it's worn in a ceremony, it conceals the bride. It hides the bride for just a moment. Kind of like how she was concealed under the old covenant. The veil may be beautiful because it creates this anticipation for when the veil is lifted. However, the veil would cease to be beautiful if it continuously covered the bride's face. In other words, you wouldn't want your bride to live constantly behind the veil now, would you? Of course you wouldn't. And the father didn't want to live behind the veil forever either. I'm talking about the veil of the temple that confined His presence, the veil into the Holy of Holies. Jesus would change all of that through His death on the cross. Through His death, He would show us the Father. I'm talking about the Father who rendered the old covenant obsolete. The Father who tore the veil that separated man from His presence. The Father that demonstrated His power and His glory over death through the resurrection of not only Jesus from the dead, but many holy people. Do you know that? He raised many holy people from the dead. We see that truth in Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54. Look at these words. And when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, this is his last moment on the cross, friends. And when he had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He just cried out. What were the words? It is finished. That was his cry in the loud voice. And then he gave up his spirit. Now look what it says. At that moment, not 10 seconds later, not 10 minutes later, not 10 hours later, not 10 months later, at that moment, that tells you what happened to Christ triggered something else. It says at that moment, 
The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Man tears from bottom to top, but God tore that veil. He tore it from top to bottom. Do you see that? At that moment, when Christ expired, the heavens began to move. The Father began to orchestrate. The Father began to move. And at that moment, He said, this is what I've had in mind forever. The veil has hidden me from the bride. The veil has hidden the bride from me. I'm going to tear the veil. It says the earth shook. The rock split. And the tombs broke open. In other words, there was some noise. Kind of like those bones when they came together, you know, over in Ezekiel. They made some noise. And God is making some noise. See, His Son is already laying in silence. And now He's made some noise. There's a rumble that's going on, friends. And then look, it says, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, showing you that I have the power of life and death. Now, why did God do that? I don't know as though I can tell you for sure. I mean, why not just raise the sun? No, he's showing you, I've got the power to raise you as well. This was about you. In fact, we're going to raise you before we raise my son. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. I can just see them going to the clerk of courts and saying, I'd just like to register myself alive. I know you got a record in here somewhere that says I'm dead, but I'm alive! In fact, I've never been more alive in my life. <laughs> it says, when the centurion... And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. There was something on the inside of me that I had a little doubt at one time. I thought maybe it could be true. He's known for miracles. In fact, I've seen him do some. But I can tell you now, surely he was the Son of God. Christ alone, no more, no less. Unveiled faces, unmerited graces. Isn't that beautiful? God is so beautiful at putting together movies, if you will. Putting together vignettes, if you will. He's just an expert at it. So much drama, yet it's so beautiful. My closing scriptures ultimately take us to a wedding ceremony. And as much as I tried, God knows I tried last night, I tried to reduce this narrative down to a handful of scriptures, but it just kept feeling like I was doing a drive through wedding service. I thought I can't have that. Therefore, Sit back and enjoy the romantic pursuit of Christ and His bride. Now, I've got a lot of Scripture coming up in a second here. And I thought about commenting all along this, and I thought, well, that would feel like we've been to the wedding service and the reception if I did that, so I better just hold off on all that comment and save a little bit for the end, okay? In the book of Genesis, we find the first mention of the word veil. And it's mentioned in connection with a wedding ceremony. You see, Abraham is searching for a bride for his son Isaac. Oh, not just any bride. He's made that clear. She's got to be the perfect bride for my son. Does that sound a little familiar? It should. Because we have been made perfect in Christ. In this narrative of Genesis 24, there are four main characters. Abraham, who represents the Father, or God. He's a type and shadow of God. We have Isaac, the son, who's a picture of Christ. We have Rebekah, who's a picture of the bride of Christ. 
And we have the servant of Abraham, who's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Those are your four main characters in this narrative. Genesis chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, he says, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Remember I said, not any bride. She had to be the perfect bride. But will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. When reading this narrative, the first rose petals to fall into the wedding aisle stem from the noticeable submission of the son Isaac. Isaac, the scriptures tell us, was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and he is allowing his father Abraham to choose the bride for him? Come on, doesn't that seem a little funny? Why would he do such a thing? I'll tell you why, because Isaac had a close relationship with his father. He trusted that his father heard from God. Isaac also knew that his mother Sarah was one of the most beautiful women that had ever lived. So Abraham has a good track record of hearing from God and picking out beautiful women. So why not let daddy pick, right? At the end of this narrative, Isaac will marry Rebekah in Sarah's tent. But his mother Sarah will not be present. She had already been in the grave for three years. I don't know if your mind sees the connection or not, but remember, Isaac is a picture of Jesus, and Rebekah is a picture of the bride of Christ. And Sarah, the intangible one in this narrative, represents grace. The connection is this. Jesus, the man who came to us full of grace, had been in the grave for three days and then would rise to be married under the canopy of grace to the bride that his father had chosen for him. Isn't that beautiful? These are the words the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. Continuing, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord! God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to the young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. In other words, he's asking for a fleece. He said, I'm going to know it if all this happens. Before he had finished praying, I love that. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water from your jar. 
Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. I bet his heart is about to beat out of his chest. It's exactly what he prayed for. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Friends, 10 camels, and you figure about 40 gallons per camel, that's 400 gallons of water. And this woman is just working like crazy, running back and forth for these camels. This is grace. She wasn't asked to do that. This is how grace works. Works behind the scene. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born in Ahor. And she added, We have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. The man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man had said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. Friends, you see those scriptures echoed in the new covenant as well. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, he said. Why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels, more grace. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought out for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. Then food was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. Then tell us. Laban said. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. Do you see all this grace, friends? My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath and said, You must not get a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, What if the woman will not come back with me? He replied, The Lord, before whom I have walked faithfully, will send his angel with you and make your journey a success that you can get a wife for my son from my own clan and from my father's family. You will be released from my oath if, when you go to my clan, they refuse to give her to you. When I came to the spring today, I said, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I have come. See, I am standing beside this spring. If a young woman comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a drink, a little water from your jar. And she says to me, drink, and I'll draw water for your camels too. Let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out. Do you want to know what her name means? It means chained by beauty. That's her name. Rebecca came out with the jar on her shoulder. 
She went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please give me a drink. She quickly lowered the jar from her shoulder and said, drink and I'll water your camels too. So I drank and she watered the camels also. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. Then I put the ring in her nose and the bracelets on her arms. And I bowed down and I worshiped the Lord. I praised the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will show kindness, that's another way of saying, if you will show grace. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah, take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and her mother replied, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so, then you may go. But he said to them, do not detain me. It's my time. The fullness is here. Do not detain me now that the Lord has granted success to my journey. Send me on my way so that I may go to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebekah and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Now, I want to say something right here. Because there's so much being taught today about inclusion, that everybody's already included. You don't have to do anything to go to heaven. And this erroneous doctrine is sweeping across the world. But I want you to note here that by faith, this woman is making a choice to go to her groom, a groom she's never met. By faith, an act of her will is involved. They've already said, look, we can give you a way out. If you say no, you don't have to go. But what did she say? She said, I will go. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer, Lahi, or Rohi, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? And look what he responded with. He's, he's my master! The servant answered, so she took her veil and covered herself in chastity, modesty, reverence, and submission. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I know that was a lot of scripture. In fact, it's the most I've probably ever read in one setting at one time. But I wanted you to see what this looked like, the pursuit of the father's bride for his son, Jesus. I wanted you to see that it was a long journey. It wasn't made in haste. It was orchestrated by the Spirit. It was put together so beautifully. Friends, when Rebekah saw Isaac, 
she lowered the veil and the wedding procession began. She left her camel, she left her nurse, and she walked the grassy aisle to meet the bridegroom, Isaac. It was in Sarah's tent under the canopy of grace that Isaac made his love known to Rebekah. And it was on the cross under the canopy of heaven that God made his love known to us. The man in the field's identity had been revealed. He's my master. He's my bridegroom. He's my Jesus. Rebecca had met the man in the field, the one who loved her even before she cooked his first meal, the one who loved her even before she sewed his first robe, the one who loved her even before she bore his first son. You say, Pastor Mark, I thought this message was about unveiled faces. Yet in this narrative, Rebecca veiled her face. Friends, we were all wearing a veil when we met Jesus. But like Rebecca, we too have come under a better veil, the veil of Sarah's tent, the veil of grace. The first mention of love in the Bible is between Abraham and Isaac. It's between God and Jesus. Do you see that? The second mention of love in the Bible is between Isaac and Rebekah, Christ and the bride. Friends, it was Isaac's love for Rebekah that finally brought comfort to his bleeding heart regarding his mother's death. And it was Jesus' love for humanity that would rend the veil once for all and stop the bleeding in our hearts, the very veil that at one time separated us from the Father's presence. Friends, it is in Christ that we are loved. It's in Christ that we are cherished. The only thing that matters now is unveiled faces, unmerited graces. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I want to thank you so much that I can look back through an old covenant narrative, a long narrative, but it was a long journey for you as well. It was a long walk for Christ to the cross. In fact, he collapsed underneath the weight of it. It was so long. And Father, I thank you that he was going to the cross so that every Rebecca could be chained by beauty to the Savior himself. I thank you, Father, that you so loved Jesus. You so loved Jesus that you drew the bride to him. But there was something in the way. There was a veil that stood between you and us at one time. But Christ would say, I'll become that veil. My body will be that veil. And as my body is torn from top to bottom, Father, it will allow them to gain entrance into this garden, this heart of mine, that I might be able to show them the beauty of the Father. I thank you, Father, that when you put us together with Christ, it's Christ no more. Christ no less. And I can hear the Father as you are orchestrating this wedding and you say, what I have joined together Man cannot separate. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have unveiled faces, unmerited graces. In Jesus' name, amen.